thank you very much, Devlet, um, and thank you all for coming. It's a great honor and a privilege to be here. In, in the short time that I'm going to be speaking, I'm going to address um, the following question. What is the relationship between consciousness and the brain? Um, so I've got about 20 minutes, I think, to, to uh, deal with that one. Uh, so I, I think it's important to aim high in philosophy. We start with the big questions. Um, and I'm going to start with a quote from The Economist, oddly enough. In an article in 2006, uh, The Economist magazine said that consciousness awaits its Einstein. And there was a uh, long article about the scientific study of consciousness and what was, what was missing, what yet to be, had to be found out and what, what needed to be understood. But in a way, that's rather puzzling, that idea that consciousness awaits its Einstein. We have a lot of understanding of how the brain works, and there's an am amazingly impressive research in neuroscience. We'll be hearing s um, something about that later on after my talk um, from Sridas. But there is, I think, also a consensus among scientists, among large part of the educated population that the world is a material place and the world is in some sense fundamentally physical, that we live just in this material world and that's in some sense all there is. Um, how to understand that exactly is a complicated question, but it's not as if um, there's still huge debates going on about whether, um, in, in well, at least perhaps in this part of the world, about whether we have immortal souls or some, something like that. Um, you also have to be careful about generalizing like this because you may end up in, in a place where people do believe in these things. But um, I think it's fair to say that that's the kind of the scientific consensus is that some doctrine like materialism or that the world is fundamentally physical is, is something that people widely accept. So why does consciousness need its Einstein? I think if we, I, I want to just um, encourage in you the sense of mystery and peculiarity that surrounds the relationship between brain and consciousness. Uh, even if that doctrine of materialism is true, there's still something deeply puzzling going on. And I, I'll start with a bit of a research object of my own. This is actually um, a picture. I apologize to some vegetarians. This is a picture of some brains um, before they were going to be cooked. And thinking about what I was going to say tonight, I was thinking about brains. And uh, there's a, there was a film came out a few years ago with uh, Meryl Streep and Amy Adams is about is a story of a woman who decided to cook all the recipes in Julia Child's book on French cooking in one year. It's a very odd thing to do. The film in some ways is quite charming, but in the book of this film, um, there's a really good passage where she talks about brains. And she says, it isn't so much the taste with brains, although that's no great shakes, it, it isn't the ick factor, she says, the way that when you wash them, you inevitably wind up with bits of brain matter strewn Tarantino-esquely around the sink in your garments and the weird gummy white matter that holds the brain together, which is sort of like fat, I guess. It's all quite sort of repulsive. <laughs> but she says then, no, the real mystery, she says, and the real problem is the philosophical tailspin part, she says, the inconsolable mystery of life, consciousness, the soul. I want a brain to be tightly knit and deeply furrowed, conduited with the circuitous pathways of thought and the deep receptacles of memory, but no. It's just this flabby, pale, small organ that disintegrates in your fingers if you let the faucet run too fast. 
how can this be? How can we be? Say. It's a really nice passage. You, know, you, don't, you get the feeling that that's what the puzzle about consciousness is. When you see what a brain actually looks like, you think, how can that be anything to do with me? Um, in fact, in some sense, you feel that about any, any internal part of your body. You feel, how can that just be me? It seems in some way independent of you. It's something weird or alien to you. But particularly with the brain, um, that sense, the mind-body question or the mind-brain question, that's a good way to put it. How can, how can this be? That is to say, how can we be? Now, broadly speaking, in, in philosophy and science, we've confronted over the centuries two extreme sorts of answers, and I'm going to give two very extreme versions of those extreme answers. Uh, the first answer is that we just are our brains. Now, um, Devla said in her introduction that this uh, would be controversial to a neuroscientist to deny this. Um, I'm going to deny this, but I think it's obvious. It, it's obviously <coughs> false that we are our brains. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. Um, the other extreme is that we're something else. That we're not our brains or our bodies. We're not organisms, but we are something else. Fundamentally, we are, say, for example, something immaterial. So here's an illustration of the two extremes. This is a remark from a book by Francis Crick, published in 1994, where Crick says that you, your joys and sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Um, so, so says Crick in this book, which is called The Astonishing Hypothesis. The, that, the astonishing hypothesis is that we are material beings. Um, on the other hand, there's the, the other extreme, which is sometimes known as Cartesian dualism after Descartes. Um, Descartes thought that the soul was an immaterial substance uh, and that the, the human being was a combination of the body and the soul. And the body was, was a part of the material world and the soul was this immaterial thing which was co connected to the body in a mysterious way. Descartes was actually very interested in the mechanics of the body and how the, um, so the, the actual mechanisms of, say, the nervous system um, communicated with the brain, but he thought that uh, at a certain point in the brain, the brain met the immaterial soul, and that's responsible for your thought and rationality. Um, so I want to say these two extremes, we have to reject both of these extremes. Um, but on the one hand, and here I'm going to be very literal-minded and pedantic. This is, this is what we have to be as philosophers. We have to try and stick to the simple truths as much as we can and try and see what follows from the simple truths. Uh, you're not your brain. Um, and here's the reason. You're an organism. Um, you're a human being, maybe. Maybe you're a person. Whatever. There, there are these different ways we think of ourselves, a person, human being, the organism, the self, or something like that. We could think of ourselves in, in, in these different ways, but whatever you are, you're not a part of your organism. You are the organism itself. Um, and I think that's... The, and the brain, on the other hand, is an organ. It's a part of the organism. So you cannot be identical with a part of you. Now, that might sound very pedantic, but it's literally true. 
And the claim, the claim, when people say, you are your brain, or I am my brain, they don't really mean it. Because if they meant it, they would have to say that you were identical with one of your parts, like saying, you are your liver, or you are your heart. So literally, you are not your brain. That's not what we are. And we know that because we know things like, you know, your brain weighs three kilos, or two and a half kilos, or something. You may weigh 50 kilos, 60 kilos, 80 kilos. So you can see, I'm, I'm trying to state the obvious here rather than say anything controversial. So I think this is something that even the even neuroscientists <coughs> will agree with. Um, so that that can't what Crick says cannot be literally true, um, and I think he doesn't actually mean it. He means something else. But on the other hand, I want to say um, against Descartes, there are no immaterial substances. Um, and the reason I want to say that there are no immaterial substances is because um, what Descartes meant by substance was something very specific, and very tied to a particular period in the history of thought. Uh, it was an idea that derived from Aristotle, ultimately, which is the idea that a substance is something that's capable of existing independently of everything else. And Descartes thought that the mind was something that was capable of, or the soul, something capable of independent existence existing independently of everything else. Uh, now that idea of a substance, which isn't the same thing as the idea of a, of a stuff or a, or a kind of you know, ectoplasm or something like that. It's not that, it's not that idea. It's this very specific, rather abstract philosophical idea of a substance. And I, I believe we don't have any use for that notion of a, sub that notion of a substance <coughs> anymore. So the division that Descartes uh, created between the material world, which was one substance, and all the individual mental substances, uh, this is not the picture of the world that we can believe these days. So there aren't any of these immaterial substances. So that's the other extreme. So if someone tells you that when you deny you are, that you are your brain, or if you deny that neuroscience can explain everything, or if you say there's more to you than simply your... Um, your biological nature, you also have a psychological nature, which is something I believe. So if, if you say those things, that doesn't mean that you believe what Descartes believed. So, don't, so you don't have to, we haven't got a simple choice between saying either all you are is a bunch of neurons or um, you are an immaterial soul. There must be something in between. Now, to return to the problem for a second, I think this is, it's very important to understand what sort of problem it is when we look at the brain and we think, what is, what, how can this thing produce consciousness? How can we be what we are? Um, some people say the brain doesn't seem like the right kind of thing to create consciousness. Philosophers sometimes put it like this. And people who express a sense of mystery about the, about the brain, they say it's just mysterious how something like that could produce consciousness. Um, but it's very important to emphasize that just because something doesn't seem like it's the sort of thing that could be the seat of consciousness, that doesn't mean, of course, that it isn't. Um, and here's just to, to quote another Cambridge thinker. Um, Wittgenstein once asked his uh, students, said, why did people used to think that the sun went around the earth? And one of his students said, because it looks as if the sun goes around the earth. And he, and he said, 
how would it look if the Earth went round the sun? And the answer is exactly the same. So you can say an analogous thing about the brain and consciousness. You say, why, why did people think that the brain was not the basis of consciousness? You might say, well, it seems as if it's not the basis of consciousness. And you could say, well, how would it seem if it were the basis of consciousness? And the answer is exactly the same. It would seem exactly the way it does now. So I think, so uh, arguing from how strange it is that the brain seems so different from consciousness um, is not going to get you very far in itself. Um, so I think we need some sort of middle way. I wouldn't say a third way because that, that, that phrase has been become somewhat tarnished in, in this country, but we need some sort of middle way um, between the two extremes. Uh, and this is often the case with these philosophical questions. You've got a, a question and then people answer the extremes and somehow you have to find some the truth that lies in the middle. Well, one thing that is certainly true and I think this is the thing, actually, that Francis Crick meant when he said that thing, is that consciousness arises <coughs> from certain arrangements of the material order of the brain. Right? That's, that's a quote, direct quote from a popular book by um, the neuroscientist Gerald Edelman and Julia Tononi. Consciousness arises from certain arrangements in the material order of the brain. Um, so that, that can be one of our starting points. And then we have to face certain questions and these are really the big questions about consciousness. And I call them the how and the what and the will question. That's the how question is, how can consciousness arise from the material order of the brain? How does it? Um, the second question is equally difficult, which is, what is it that arises from the material order of the brain? In other words, when we say that consciousness arises from this, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by consciousness? What is the phenomenon of consciousness? Um, and the third question is, will neuroscience give us the answers to these questions? Now, I'm just going to say a couple of things about, um, about uh, the, these questions in reverse order, and then I'll leave it to the three of us to tell us the real facts about them. Um, will neuroscience tell us about... The, about the answers to these questions. Um, well, of course, in some, in, in some ways, neuroscience is telling us the answers to these questions. But um, what I want to emphasize is uh, something that's very important to me in the way I think about this, the, the relationship between the mind and the brain is that, um, and again, it's an obvious fact, but it needs to be pointed out. When you identify something in the brain as, say, the, the, the visual cortex, and here's just a very schematic diagram of where some mental functions are, um, are located in the brain or where they are realized in the brain or where the mechanisms of these things are. When you do that, when you locate something as the visual cortex, you already have an idea of the task that that thing performs. That's why you call it the visual cortex. It's not that you've identified the visual cortex partly through psychophysical experiments, partly through asking people what happens when certain things are wrong with their visual cortex. So you already have a sense of people as having a psychological nature as well as having this neural nature. And then the question is how to map one onto the other. Um, and that's what goes on in um, when, when people are, have, have their brains scanned in, in the fMRI machines. 
Um, they'll be asked about certain things, assuming that these people have actually a psychology, that they have consciousness and that they have, say, visual experience or, or something. And then those things are related to, what's, uh, to, to how things are structured in the brain. Um, so my bold claim would be that cognitive neuroscience presupposes a psychological reality which is implemented in the machinery of the brain. So it's not that the only things that there are there are what are the neurons. There's also the psychological structures. Um, then the question is, well, what are those psychological what, what are those psychological capacities and how should they be characterized? And you might think that it's it's a simple question, and some people talk as if it is a simple question. Some people talk as if there is this thing, consciousness, and what we're looking for is the is its neural correlate. Um, but if you want to find the correlate of something, you want to find out what it is that you're correlating it with. You've got to correlate things, you've got two things. You've got this is correlated with this. They're separate things. And you've got to have some idea of what it is that you're trying to correlate things with. And yet there is, at this point, in philosophy and, and in neuroscience and in psychology, uh, there is wide disagreement about how to understand what it is that you're correlating with the things in the brain. That is, to how to understand what the category of consciousness actually is. Um, anyone who's familiar with, with, even with the popular books on these, these things, will see that people talk about access, consciousness in terms of access or monitoring. They talk about consciousness in terms of phenomenal or phenomenology, uh, in terms of uh, made-up words like qualia to try and describe the character of consciousness. Um, so, uh, and I, so I believe there's still a lot of understanding to be done of the phenomenon that we're trying to correlate with, um, with the neural structures. And then finally, there's the question of how consciousness arises, or how is consciousness possible? How does it arise out of the material structure of the brain? And I, I think it's fair to say that no one really has any idea, actually, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, it's, it, it may just be a simple fact that we will never understand. Uh, it is a fact, but it may be a simple fact that we will never understand fully. Uh, but this is why consciousness needs its Einstein, I would say. And what the Einstein of consciousness has to do is not decide between the immaterial soul view or the view that we are our brains. Um, the question is to make sense of the things that we already know and how to put together the things we already know in a way that makes sense of them. It's not about whether you are your brain, I like to say, or whether you have an immaterial soul. The question here is more about understanding than about um, metaphysics. Thank you.
just take a second one, the last one. Do I need to use a mic? I'm pretty loud already. No? Yeah, if you can't hear me, just let me know. Um, great, so uh, <coughs> when I was asked to do this, and I saw you know, uh, Professor Tim Quinn is gonna do the other bit, I was like, okay, uh, that's got a tall order to try and match that. So anyway, what I'm gonna do give today is give you a sort of an overview of a very practical perspective on consciousness, so a, a compliment. So what I've tried to do carefully is make sure that I do compliment, not contrary to each other. So I've used black slides, which is white. <laughs> and there'll be lots of pictures and pointers and images to the brain. But hopefully, it's not about drowning in the facts, but trying to link to those very directly relevant questions that uh, Tim has raised. Because actually, in many ways, it is a disagreement as much as a lack of understanding that actually sort of unites us in many ways. And what I sort of center around is the idea that there are some potential sort of um, candidates that a lot of neuroscientists are currently entertaining as things that could be human candidates of something that we think of as consciousness from a phenomenological perspective, from a perspective of what it feels like to be conscious. But the big question certainly is, it's not even clear quite exactly what it is that these are human candidates of. However, there are some useful ones, and I'll show you that even if we don't understand everything about consciousness today, there are practical applications of it that actually make a difference to people's lives on a daily basis. So the thing that I think is useful, one potential sort of formula, if you want to call it that, is the Mohawk of consciousness. What does that mean? Um, hopefully, the skeletons of theology tells you most of that. But uh, I'll take you to from the start. So Tim had a, a sort of a quote from Francis Crick, and uh, you know, in many ways, I thought, wow, if Francis Crick says something that uh, historically we've all been pondering. Now, Hippocrates way before Francis Crick, quite a bit of a time advantage. But he said, men ought to know yeah, from the brain, and from the brain only arise our pleasures, our joys, our laughter, death, as well as our sorrows, pains, our griefs, and our fears. And that, that's, that just seems to capture a lot of theory that is both amazing about the brain and what it does, and at the same time so perplexing. Because really, it's not a lot to see uh, when, when you actually see a brain in front of you. Tell you that, well, that's interesting, there's a bit of fat, there's a bit of flesh, it's gooey, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just a lot of structure that doesn't make any sense. And actually, the ancient Greeks, though, you know, for, for the, the, the entire wisdom that they've accumulated was immense, but the challenge they faced, just like we do even today, was to understand how does it do all that? How is it that it is where our pleasures and our joys and our pains and our death arise? Because their attempts at this were, well, are interesting, and in many ways uh, are, are a, sort of a, a guide to what we should and not do, because at the time they said, well, this was the age of hydraulics, as you can remember, Archimedes and you know, the wheel and all that sort of stuff. So for them, it was about fluids. You know, they said, well, it's got to be something to do with how fluid flows through the brain. And you know, they really believed in the, the fact that there were these fluids that carried your vital sort of um, spirit with you. And you had these four spirits that were governed by these fluids, these fluids and you could sort of be humors in it. You were, uh, had a mixture of humors in each individual that made up a personality. You could be phlegmatic, and you, or you could be sort of choleric, you know, one reflected anger, one reflected sort of being calm, 
And we all were mixing these and at different times, different humors would sort of surface and that's what made you really. And somehow the brain, it wasn't separated and the fluid circulated. And for a long time, this is being taught in medical textbooks, uh, well into the middle ages really. But that's when things started changing. So during the Renaissance, you had this change in some use to start thinking differently about the mechanisms of what the brain might actually be doing. And so it started with these experiments uh, in the Middle Ages where they started doing electrical experiments. Now we move from hydraulics to the fact that somebody had discovered electromagnetism. Well, the early experiments that the Italians heard about the electromagnetism coming from here in England, they realized, well, actually, we should try understanding what the mechanisms are of motor function in this case. So Galvani famously did experiments where he had people, <coughs> cadavers in, in this case, uh, and frogs, and he showed that by passing an electric current through a cadaver, you can make it sort of leg rise or something like that. At the time, it was shocking and he had, you know, maybe faces in the same place. Because it was just unimaginable that you could basically use electric currents to raise somebody from the dead almost. And uh, that started off people thinking, well, maybe it's, it's doing something else. Um, and that sort of started a whole series of ideas that still is with us today because these people, Richard Chilton and Heinz Berger, some of you might have, some of these people you might have heard of, especially Heinz Berger, because he's seen as the father of a lot of um, neuroscience theory because he sort of published a picture, this picture. Though Richard Chilton, the Institute of Neurosciences, was the first man who saw the disc of the gun. Hans Berger, who was in Germany, he felt that you could produce a signal from the brain. In this case, his own son. He put a, 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 a sensor on his son's head, just on the outside, and measured a signal, right? And he said, well, this is what it looks like, and then became known as the father of what we call electroencephalography or EEG. It's one of the many ways that you can measure what's going on in the brain. And he basically published this picture in 19. And this is something we use even today to study what the brain is doing at any given point. And this signal, this oscillation that you can see there, is what is called the alpha wave. Why is this interesting? Hopefully I'll tell you more about it as we go along. Because what we now do today is use tools like these, a high density system to measure what the brain is doing at any given point using EEG. Right? And you can do that, I can make you a picture like this, which hopefully will perhaps there we go. So this is your brain at rest. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a colorful way to represent something that looks like a motor. And this is not my idea. Somebody else called it a motor, and I thought, yeah, that is good. So I just use that. A motor is, is just a way to represent the idea that if I were to just measure your activity at rest, you know, uh, you say you're conscious, and I take that as a given, and I basically say, well, what does your brain look like when it's conscious? I don't know what you're doing or what you're thinking about. I just measure it. And if I do that for a certain period of time, let's say 10 minutes, I could produce a pattern of activity that, that represents a connection between different bits of brain and making it intelligent. So it's some clever math. You can basically come up with a representation like this, which basically represents the conscious brain, sort of a snapshot, a portrait, if you, if you will, of, of, of your conscious brain. Now, you might say, well, that's interesting. Look, it looks like a problem, but what is it useful for? It's useful because what we know from a lot of other neuroscience um, don't worry about too many of the brain systems, but basically what it, it tells us actually is that this, this neuroscience research is actually linking with that concept of a motor because we know from research into how the brain is changing over time that you're constantly oscillating, it turns out, between two sets of networks that seem to sort of talk to each other. They indicate in red and blue here. Now, the idea is basically that when you're thinking about the world outside, you know, when you turn your attention to what I'm saying, when you're sort of seeing this visual information, 
thinking is becoming aware of it, the areas in red where the actors, they're all talking to each other. It's, it's not a random thing. While you're sitting there, your, your brain isn't doing anything random, and that would, that would make no sense anyway. But actually, these areas are too active together, they can talk to another information. So when you're thinking about the world inside, right, there you're basically sitting. There are a set of brain areas that are active now that are colored in blue, that are basically sort of looking at the world that is inside you, where you're concentrating on what's going to happen to you next, what is going to happen to me, or the previous day in your life. You're sort of taking that information in and making it your own. And your brain is constantly switching between these two sets of areas that are too active. Now, are these neural channels that can't speak? Certainly, we don't have anything to consent on that matter because in order to show one aspect of all that we're measuring is actually recorded consciousness. But when people say they, have, they are, are in a particular state which they can associate with their consciousness, we see this type of activation. And the signature of this activity you can see in EEG as a measure. But all this has a real practical aspect to it, and hopefully the last sort of bit of my talk, I'll give you an idea of why, even if you don't understand everything about consciousness, or you do understand how to practically use it. Um, one example of this, of how consciousness changes and what we can use to measure that, is something we're all aware of, the, the sort of transition, as it were, from a state of conscious wakefulness, as well, right now, uh, to maybe in a couple of hours, deep sleep. So let's say at 11 to 12 p.m. is when we all hit a sort of scenario where we kind of really are in a deep, dreamless sleep. Depending on you know, whether it's a night owl, you probably prefer the later, doesn't matter. In the end, there's, there's a stage during sleep where we really are not, your brain is actually quite, um, how do I put it, dark. There's, no, there's nobody in there, really. But, <laughs> not, but this is a remarkable point. You know, the next, the next morning, you're back. It's the same you. So where did, you, where did you go in the meantime? I think it's a fascinating question. But there are also intermediate stages, where, for example, REM sleep is fascinating because you you're like at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. in the morning, you have these vivid dreams where you're really living out accessing your, your anxieties, your desires, you know. And what's fascinating about it, about REM sleep is the people in your life, they start laughing because they're being said, but in fact, they're all sort of swapped around and your mother is there swearing and the, the movie <laughs> Mulholland Drive is an example of this. So uh, David Lynch captures that, where all these characters are all mixed up and it's just, it's exactly what REM sleep is like because the, what the brain is doing is feeling to reawaken but uh, sort of just looking into a sort of inward as it were. So you've got all these transitions that the brain is making through these states on, on an average basis every day. We're all doing it. So an example of what happens during the, in just such a transition during general anesthesia. This is another example of where you have a loss of consciousness going from full awakening to a complete loss. And that's what you're seeing here but in real time. You're seeing the brain changing as somebody is getting a drug, an anesthetic. And this mobile operation is constantly changing because what we're thinking about is changing. The brain is constantly in a dynamic state. But as the brushes change, this person is going to lose consciousness. And what you'll see, the video might be faster for the task, but the pattern will change. The back, that sort of those strong connections will drop off, and you'll start seeing something in the front here. There. So at this point, this person is completely unconscious. And what you can see that that mobile has suddenly lost a lot of its strength. That pattern connection is fundamentally different. And this is sort of two hours of time sort of time stopping about 30 seconds. And as this person slowly recovers consciousness as a drug, the anesthetic, and you use it in hospitals every day, 60,000 times a day in the US, that drug wears off, they'll start coming back. So somewhere about now, where you see the flow, it's constantly changing. There's a lot of stuff going on that we do not understand. You know, there's a lot of variability here that 
is after the twenty two that we can't turn down. However, what we can turn down is a transition, a trajectory through time where the country keeps discovering the problems of the country to when they retreat the end of the country, to when they come back and they say, What happened in the time? We have no memory of what happened during the time they were unconscious, but we can measure that in the brain. We have correlates in the fact that there are levels of consciousness and they change. And this sort of understanding we have about how consciousness is evolving over time and there are neural correlates of these levels has implications. Implications especially for challenging clinical questions like the one that the addressed itself to the question of what is left to do in a vegetative state. Now, this is something we've all heard of, the fact that somebody can go into a coma and then not come out again. So there are movies about it, people have written books. It's really a conundrum because from a clinical perspective, it's very hard to pin down what is a vegetative state and what can we say, what, what do we know about what it's like to let somebody in there. You know, this can happen to a friend or a colleague or a wife or a husband. And it's, it's a huge traumatic challenge for the people, not just for the person who's in the state, but also, of course, for them, but also for their family members and their sort of us at large, because we need to know to be able to say something about what the brain is doing in this case. So if you think about the Mohawk evidence, that's here, fully awake, fully conscious, fairly robust, and I can produce that pretty much everybody. That's somebody in a vegetative state. So but you might say, well, that's not surprising from a scientific perspective. We need somebody who has brain damage and the connections between brain areas are physically damaged. So why is it surprising that the activity, the coordinated activity that the brain is producing in your brain typically is glucose? Right? Not, not very surprising. However, that is also somebody in a vegetative state who is behaviorally identical to that person. What I mean by that is if in the hospital bed they are both producing the same level of behavior, that is no behavior, but the brain activity is indistinguishable from somebody that you would know. What's going on? Now this is, this is a challenge for the clinicians today, every day. I find it constantly. There are cases like this coming up every day and we are at a loss because the question of what consciousness is there is very hard to answer if you don't even know what consciousness is and how to measure it. So when you're comparing healthy adults from vegetative patients to a vegetative patient who has hidden awareness, that's where the things start getting interesting because what we know from other research, research that also was done in Cambridge, that you can use a functional imaging technique, a technique that puts somebody in a scanner and asks them you know, to imagine playing tennis. That's a weird thing to do. But if you did do that, you would produce activation in a particular bit of the brain called the supplementary motor area. Why? Because when you imagine doing sort of motor action, that's a bit of brain that's planning what you're doing. So there's a bit of brain that basically makes the motor plan. First you would do this, and you would do that, and you would take the ace in this way, etc., etc. So you're really like living it out in your head. This patient produced activation very similar to that. Though, if you ask them to if you ask them to play tennis, they would do nothing. You ask them to imagine playing tennis, and they would stand. What do, what can they interpret in that? This patient in the middle, I showed you, had that ability. She did provide independent evidence of this ability that she had. And what's more, this patient not only did have these networks of sort of robustness, as it were, that looked like networks that you might see in my brain or your brain, she imagined playing tennis, and she woke up a year later. But when you left Alberts Hospital, this was the patient you saw. She was in a comatose state, and at the, state, at the time of discharge, she was again in a comatose state. Now, is the clinician wrong? Of course not. That is not what I'm saying at all. The clinician was, was correct in his principle of behavioral diagnosis of the patient's state. But the fact is that there is lots of information that the neuroscience can provide us, which we now have to make sense of from the perspective of 
how much can you say about that person's sort of consciousness from the person's external measurement? So this is a question that puzzles us all, and it's, it's, it's very important for us to be able to answer if we're able to have a handle on how we can help patients in this case and how we can resolve the ethical quandary that they're kind of effectively in this situation. Because ultimately, really, the bottom line is neuroscience is, is, is a field which is evolving, which is constantly sort of changing questions about what consciousness is, how much of it can be measured, and so on. And certainly the dialogue with philosophers is one that bears on this. However, the bottom line, in many ways, all, all that debate is very, it's very simple. How do I know you're conscious right now? You know, if I were to ask you to raise your hand and say, if you're conscious, you ra raise your hand, most of you would raise your hand, so I guess I would take you away from it. I mean, you could be zombies. I, I honestly <laughs> do not know. You, know, you could you could literally go out you know, and completely be a different individual or not be conscious. You know, the whole thing could be a simulation. That's ultimately a philosophical truth that we can't run away from. But we are taking the consensual view that if you say you're conscious, you probably are. But what's interesting is this notion of using behavior to assess consciousness is exactly what helps patients see consciousness. Consciousness is a thing that I can measure the best way. I can say the weight, if you can squeeze my hand, you're conscious, and that's that. Anything beyond that is from the realms of sort of philosophical inquiries and which ultimately manipulate a broader sort of cosmic relations rules. But hopefully what I've tried to show you is that there are some aspects of what we can measure about consciousness that can be manipulated and that can give us valuable information about the neurocognitive functions that at least this person in relation to this case <coughs> care about. And that's not true, is it? We're not entirely clear. And ultimately the challenge for neuroscientists is to basically ask, are the sorts of steps, steps like answering these sorts of questions, <coughs> what are you trying to draw at these moments? Now, it's interesting that a lot of research in neuroscience is focused on this. Can we understand what aspects of consciousness, what are the contents of somebody's consciousness at any given time? But the broadest, biggest question, how does it lie to you? you know, what, wh what is the sort of internal, sort of phenomenological state that you are going through that somehow I can deal with or I can understand? These are the biggest questions for us to be able to answer. And I think the jury is out as to whether we'll ever be able to do it. But even if we did, whether it would be satisfactory, because ultimately the phenomenology of consciousness is the bit that we all take for granted. You know, you know you're conscious, but maybe it would be impossible for me to ever understand what your consciousness is like. But we all want to know what is it like to be that person in relation to this case and whether they would want to continue their life, whether they whether they enjoy it and uh, whether it's fulfilling. These are the questions that we ultimately were fascinated by. And I hopefully this research can perhaps shed some light on it. And I think these are the ways in which perhaps consciousness can be abused. And maybe there are ways in which going forward there will be applications that speak to artificial consciousness. But maybe I'll leave that for the questions. Thank you.